we've been discussing the fall of the world system. The world system that we are afflicted by even today. It's nothing new. There's nothing new under the sun. What you see today in our politics, what you see today in our schools and our government is not new. You know, the wicked use ridicule and ridicule and ridicule about the things of God and they project it in the public media to woo the masses. That's nothing new. That's how evolution got a foothold in our society. The evolutionists didn't have science upon which to debate, so they used ridicule. And they got the media to pick it up, and it just shamed everybody into following it because nobody wants to speak out, and nobody wants to take a stand that will cost them something. That's common. That's typical throughout history. It's part of the world system. Let's be quiet, whoever's talking. Thank you. I'm recording this, so when you guys talk and mess around, people all over the world that would listen to this will hear it. That's kind of embarrassing, isn't it? Okay. I don't know if anybody cares enough to listen, but I do have had emails from time to time from other countries where people say thanks for these messages. So when you talk, you get on there, and somebody in Russia is probably thinking, who's that kid? He needs a spanking. <laughs> so you don't want somebody in Russia thinking that. That would be strange. But we live amidst the world system. The world system, going back to the days of Cain, has two elements. has a political or a commercial element, and it has a religious element. Okay. And so these elements are judged at the end of time, once and for all. The world system that vexed Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah, that vexes us today, will be judged by the king of all creation. Just, not just the religious element, as we see in chapter 17, but the commercial and the political element as well. Before we get back into the text, I believe we got through the first three verses of chapter 18. I want to look at something in 2 Peter this morning. Turn to 2 Peter chapter 2. Here, Peter is warning that in the last days false prophets will come, teaching damnable heresies. Many will follow their teachings. There will be a falling away. There will be all sorts of things to expect in the last days. Peter talks about this. Jude talks about this. Paul talks about this, calling these times perilous times. And in the context of this, Peter looks back in history where God judged wickedness and looks at these examples. One of those is Sodom and Gomorrah. I think it's appropriate because the Bible says in Isaiah and Jeremiah describing the very things we're reading about in Revelation 18, that the overthrow of Babylon will be like Sodom and Gomorrah. Peter reminds his readers who were primarily Jews. Peter was a missionary to the Jews. He was in Babylon amidst the Jewish population that still remained there in New Testament times. He says, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, God condemned them with an overthrow, making them an ensample unto those that after should live ungodly. History is a teacher. It's a teacher. God's judgment of nations is a teacher. It's a warning. It shows us what God thinks concerning those that live ungodly. And it should cause us to fear Him. 
Unfortunately, the only thing men ever learn from history is that men never learn from history. We want to pull down monuments, and in doing so, we, pull, we erase the history. And when we erase history, whether it's good or evil, we can't learn from it. But what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah was an ensample. That means it teaches us. It's not just an example. It's an ensample. There's a lot to learn concerning those that live ungodly. But, verse 7, and delivered just lot. Just means righteous. Vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them and seeing and hearing vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. Lot went down to dwell in the cities of the plain. He chose those fruitful lands. Him and Abraham parted. He lived in Sodom. And it says that Lot was righteous. Doesn't mean he was perfect. But Lot was a just man. Feared God. And living amongst all of that madness, his righteous soul was vexed. It was tormented. Can we relate to that today? Can we relate to that? In fact, if we're followers of Christ and our lives and our souls are not vexed in this wickedness in which we live, then we've got a spiritual problem. But Lot was once vexed as we are today. But what did God do? God delivered him. And then what does it say in verse 9? The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations. And to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. You know, in the midst of all of these things we live, in the midst of the evil and the wickedness, it seems there's justice nowhere. Truth has fallen in the streets, and God is silent. Silent. He sees all, but He waits. In the midst of all of this, we can rest knowing that God delivers the godly out of temptations. What did God do? To Lot and his family before the fire fell down from heaven. He pulled them out. What did God do to Enoch who walked with God before the flood? He pulled him out. Enoch is a type of the church. Pulled out before the judgment. What did God do for Noah and his family? He preserved them through that judgment. Noah is a type of Israel. Preserved through the tribulation. God pulled Lot out. In that context, we believers in the church are told God knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptation. And that's what he promises to do. The letter to the church at Philadelphia. That because thou hast kept my word, I will keep thee from the hour of temptation which is to come upon the earth. You know, we can look forward to being delivered and we can rest assured that the, the wicked are reserved until the day of judgment. And this is what we see here in Revelation 17 and 18. The world system that vexes us, its religious element and its political element, will be judged. And how do the saints respond to this judgment? We go into chapter 19. Alleluia. For the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Hallelujah chorus comes from Revelation 19, believe it or not. But keep those things in mind as we look today. Let's turn over to Revelation 18. Remember, chapter 17 is the judgment of Mystery Babylon. Mystery Babylon, the great whore. We've talked about this. This is the religious element of the world system as personified in Roman Catholicism. If you know any history in the church age, going back to 
the days of the church up through today, and you know and understand the history of Romanism, of the papacy, there's no way that cannot be what is in view here in Revelation 17. This religious element, this mystery Babylon, this whore helps usher into power the last form of commercial Babylon, the kingdom of the beast. Helps usher him into power. He's a puppy when she rides him in Revelation 17. And when the full-grown adult comes to be, his minions, those ten kings that Daniel prophesies that we see on the beast here, they turn on the whore and they devour her. Once her usefulness is finished, she's devoured. And political Babylon, the only religious element she'll have is Antichrist himself. He will set himself up as God. There will be no room for a, a, a religious system that honors a God out there. He is God. And so the religious element is judged. Then we get to chapter 18. After these things, another angel comes and we see the judgment of Babylon. Not mystery Babylon, but Babylon. And we're going to see at the chapter, at the end of the chapter, a distinction that's made. Chapter 17 focuses on the religious whore of the church age, chapter 18, expands out to include all of history, primarily the political or the commercial arm of the false world system that goes all the way back to Cain. It was Cain's children that built cities and dwelt in them. We see types and antitypes of this throughout all of history. The scriptural biblical prophecy is full of types, antitypes. And why is that? It's because Satan doesn't know God's timetable. Satan's expressed purpose from the days of the Garden of Eden in that first prophecy of Messiah has been to stop the seed of the woman from coming into the world. It's been to overthrow and destroy Israel. It's been to overthrow and destroy the church to prevent the Messiah from taking what is his. But Satan doesn't know God's timetable. He doesn't know when Messiah will return. He didn't know exactly when Messiah would come. The scriptures, the prophecies were there. So he was constantly attempting to eradicate that messianic line. When you read the histories of the kings of Judah, you see this. He's constantly preparing or grooming Antichrist in every generation, not knowing God's timetable. Therefore, history repeats itself. It repeats itself. And when history repeats itself, these repetitions are warnings. History repeated itself there in 2 Peter. Peter talks about the angels that left their first estate. Then he talks about Noah. He talks about Sodom and Gomorrah, the same things. History repeats itself, and these repetitions are warnings and illustrations of a coming judgment, a coming consummation. The fall of nations is a warning that God judges nations, and as has happened to wicked nations in the past, so will happen to us. In fact, if God doesn't intervene with this country, He's probably going to have to dish out some apologies on Judgment Day. And God doesn't apologize. He doesn't change His mind. He may change His way, like he did for Nineveh when they repented at the preaching of Jonah. But he doesn't change his mind. Nineveh was eventually destroyed. 
So we have types and antitypes. Sometimes the Old Testament prophecy telescopes. It telescopes from the near future to the far future. We see this with Daniel. Daniel's talking about a king that would come in the latter time of the Greek Empire. And then he talks about the time of the end and telescopes to Antichrist. These things are easily discerned. And so what we have here is the consummation of all those types and antitypes. Satan's last attempt utterly fails. Man demonstrates that whatever dispensation he has placed or given stewardship, he always chooses himself over God. He always blames God instead of admitting his wrong. He always falls for the lies of the evil one. Man didn't blame, Adam didn't blame Eve in the garden. We've heard Matthew talk about this. He blamed God. The woman you gave to me made me sin. That's what we do today. So we see the consummation and the fall. We've seen the fall of the religious element. Now we're going to see the fall of the commercial element. We looked at the first three verses. It says in verse 3, All nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication, and the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth are waxed rich through the abundance of her delicacies. So this is obviously bigger than a city. It's a world system because it has affected all nations. These same things we're reading about in chapter 18 are, are written about in Isaiah 13 and 14 and in Jeremiah 50 and 51. None of this is new. You know, we often think maybe the New Testament is something new, it's something different, or we speak of the New Testament unintentionally as if it's something other when it's not. There are over a thousand quotations or allusions in the New Testament back to Old Testament scriptures. And things that are written and prophesied like here, have already been written about and confirmed in the Old Testament. In Jeremiah 51, Jeremiah 51 verse 49, these words are written, As Babylon hath caused the slain of Israel to fall, so at Babylon shall fall the slain of all the earth. Okay, so we're talking about all the earth here, all nations. This is the consummation. The system will perish. So it's bigger than a city, although it may involve the rebuilding of a literal city. It involves all the earth and the falling of the slain of all the earth at Babylon. We know that takes place at that great battle of Armageddon. So this is... Wider than a city, it involves an entire world system. However, it's worth asking, is this simply a system judged or is there actually a rebuilt city of ancient Babylon in view? When we read Isaiah 13 and 14, I'm not going to do that today. When you read Jeremiah 50 and 51, you have to ask yourself, have these things really been fulfilled in history? And when you look at the history of the city of Babylon, the answer is no. These things have not been fulfilled. When we look at Old Testament prophecy, when we look at New Testament prophecy, we may not be able to understand it. We may not be able to predict exactly what it will look like. 
We may be way off base. But when prophecy is fulfilled, history confirms that it's always literal. It's always to the letter, even in the details. And it's always a stumbling block. Its fulfillment's always a stumbling block to the wicked. We looked at Nineveh. We looked at Tyre and how those judgments fell exactly like they were written. It's the same here. When we look at what is written of Babylon here in the first part of chapter 18, it talks about how she has become the habitation of devils and the hold of every foul spirit and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. Again, this is repeating what is written in the Old Testament. That there won't, no one will dwell there. It'll be a place for strange creature, creatures. It'll be a, a, a desolate place where none will inhabit. The shepherds won't even come near it. And when we look at the history of Babylon, that's not been the case. Yes, Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom was overthrown. Yes, the city of Babylon eventually passed into disuse. But even today, bricks from the ancient city are, have been used in the buildings in Baghdad. We looked at this back on April 23rd of last year. I preached a message, Babylon is falling. It was number 97 in this series. This is number 120, I believe. And we trace the origin of the world system all the way back to Cain. So you can go back and listen to that. Babylon is falling, fallen, April 23rd, 2017. And we talked about that. We looked at Babylon itself. It was overthrown by the Persians in 539 B.C. Peter was a disciple that went to reach the Jews living there in the New Testament time. By the mid-5th century, it was written that only Jews lived there. So Jews were still living there in the mid-5th century. In A.D. 9-11, it was called a village. Many cities and towns have been built upon its ruins, including four ancient capitals. The, the Greeks built Seleucia there. The Persians built El Maiden. The Parthians built Sistephon. And the Caliphs, the, 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 the Muslims built Kuf. In 1898, it was a village of Hilla which was built from the debris of the old city and had 10,000 people living there. And even today, the bricks are used in modern buildings in the city of Babylon. So when you look at what's written of ancient Babylon, those prophecies have not been fulfilled. They are fulfilled here. So it's hard not to think that there will, in addition to the judging of a world system, it's hard not to think there will be an actual city rebuilt as Antichrist capital. And those things can happen very quickly. It doesn't take very long. If you go around and look at college campuses today in the United States, I've traveled and I've made circuits over the years preaching on campuses. And those are truly the idolatrous temples of our society. They truly are. I was reading where a, a university the other day somewhere in Georgia is now going to require students of, of any degree program to take introductory courses about gender equality, about all of these things that we're have, we have shoved down our throats. So these students are going to be required to pay for these courses. doesn't matter what their degree is. These are the temples of propaganda that program the masses for the coming of Antichrist. 
And when you go to these campuses and you travel and you end up on different one, on the same ones over a few years, it's amazing to see the construction that has taken place. There's hardly a public campus in this country where there's not some type of construction. Big buildings, magnificent facilities. They go up very quick. It's not unthinkable. It's not fantastic to think that this could happen even in Babylon. We have the judgment of a system, but there almost has to be a rebuilding of a city. I want to look in the prophet Zechariah for a minute because Zechariah talks about these things. The rise of commercialism in the plain of Shinar. Zechariah chapter 5. Look at verses 5 through 11. When the seventh angel poured out his vial, we read about that in chapter 16, verse 19. That's basically at the end of the tribulation. We've paused and we're zooming out to see the prophecy of judgment against the world system. That seventh vial is poured out and there's a great earthquake and the city of Jerusalem is divided into three parts. And then we're told that all the cities of the nations fell. So in an instant, the commercial political system of the whole world falls. So this judgment happens at the end of the tribulation and with the return of Christ in Revelation 19. And it involves cities falling, commercialism, politics falling. In Zechariah 5, again, we have the same thing. It's nothing new in the New Testament. We have the ephah of commerce that is judged. Zechariah has given a number of visions here at the beginning of his book, nine visions. And the eighth one comes in chapter 5, verse 5. Then the angel that talked with me went forth and said unto me, Lift up now thine eyes and see what is this that goeth forth. What is this? Look ye what we have here. And I said, what is it? And he said, this is an ephah that goeth forth. The ephah was the largest of the Hebrew dry measures. It was a symbol of commerce. It was a dry measure, weight. This is an ephah that goeth forth. He said, moreover, this is their resemblance through all the earth. So in other words, this is a measurement, a common measurement in ancient Israel, and it goes forth through all the earth. This is universal commercialism. And behold, there was lifted up a talent of lead. And this is the woman that sitteth in the midst of the ephah. So you have this ephah that has a top on it, a talent of lead, a heavy top. And there's a woman inside and she lifts up like a manhole cover. She lifts it up. And the angel said, or he said, this is wickedness. What was inside there, this whole scene here is wickedness. And he cast it into the midst of the ephah and he cast the weight of lead upon the mouth thereof. So you had this woman in the middle that opens up and peeks out. And the angel slams the... The, the top back down, thrust her back inside, trying to get out. It's not quite time. This is wickedness. 
Then I lifted up mine eyes and looked, and I behold, there came out two women, and the wind was in their wings. For they had wings like the wings of a stork. A stork was an unclean bird in the Mosaic law, an unclean bird. It was often called chasid, which means uh, the pious bird. It was this kind of this attitude of uh, uh, hypocrisy. Um, it, it was an imagery of a false teacher, or one that projects virtue, but inwardly they're wicked. Kind of like the social justice warriors we have all over the place behind the keyboards, even this very minute today. And there were, there were two women with the wind in their wings, and they, ha- they had the wings of a stork, and they lifted up the ephah between the earth and the heavens. So they lifted it up and carried it off. Then I said to the angel that talked with me, Whither do these bear the ephah? Where are they taking it? And he said unto me, To build it and house in the land of Shinar. And it shall be established and there set upon her base. So this ephah was carried off by these wicked women with wind in their wings. And it was planted in the land of Shinar. Babylon was built upon the plain of Shinar. That's where the tower of Babel was built. That's where Nimrod and the peoples after the flood came together and tried to build a tower that reached unto heaven. The land of Shinar. So this ephah of commerce is being carried and it's being planted to build something in the land of Shinar that will affect commerce all over the world. It tried to get out then. It wasn't time. It was thrust back in there. It was carried off. Okay? This prophecy was uttered long after the fall of Babylon. This was when the days that Israel came back into the land after they were allowed to return and rebuild their temple. This would have been toward the latter end of the Persian kingdom. Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar and his sons was destroyed. But this is a prophecy of something being built in the future. So it's hard to read this prophecy and not think that the fall of the world system will involve the destruction of a literal city that controls the world system at the last We talked about all this before. But that's an interesting prophecy. So the judgment here is a judgment of a system and of a city. You know, we often picture in our Christian mythology angels with wings. Angels are never mentioned. Messengers of God, the sons of God, are never mentioned in the scriptures as having wings. The seraphim and the cherubim in the Old Testament, have wings. The seraphim cover themselves, but in terms of women-looking creatures with wings that we see pictures of all the time, this is the only time we see it in the Bible. And it's pretty clear. This is wickedness. Do with that what you may. Angels are not women with beautiful, long, golden hair and wings like the Catholic Church betrays them. This is wickedness, according to the Bible. I mean, I didn't say it. But that's an interesting thing to think about, the things we've accepted in churchianity that don't match what the Bible says. It's interesting to think about this world system because when you look at the Jews and the Muslims and their prophecies, what they are looking for, both Jews and Muslims are looking for a Messiah. They're looking for one. Okay, What the Jews are looking for and what the Muslims are looking for are the same Messiah. But it's not our Messiah. They're looking for the false Messiah. 
Jesus told Israel, I came in my father's name and you didn't listen to me, but another will come in his own name and you will follow him. That was a prophecy of Antichrist that Jesus gave. The Jews are looking for a Messiah. You can talk to Israelis or Jewish people today. You know, hopefully Messiah will come. But the Messiah they're looking for is the false Messiah who will give them some sort of permission or help to rebuild their temple and they'll jump upon it. And they'll be deceived by this Messiah. The Messiah the Jews are looking for is the false Messiah as he will present himself in the first half of the tribulation. The Messiah that the Muslims are looking for is that same false Messiah. They're looking for the Messiah that will be Antichrist as he projects himself in the second half of the tribulation. The one that overthrows and attempts to destroy the children of Israel. The false religious system or commercial system that is judged at Babylon. So both Muslims and Jews are looking for a Messiah. They're looking for the same guy. And he's going to come. And he's going to betray all of them. And they'll be deceived. The Roman Catholic Church, religious Babylon, helps usher political Babylon, Antichrist, into power. The religious Roman Catholic system helps usher in and build the commercial Roman Empire of the last days. And then the ten horns of that commercial empire destroy the religious whore. The beast sets himself up as God with his capital at a rebuilt city of Babylon. Seems to be what is happening here. When it's all said and done, though, whether my details are correct or not, we're going to see that God fulfilled his word to the letter and every detail was exactly as it was written. In this vision here in Zechariah, we see a pursuit of wealth under the guise of religion, freedom, liberty, man-made righteousness. We had, a, uh, we had um, a wicked demon inside this ephah that was hidden in there. The pursuit of wealth under the guise of religion, freedom, liberty, man-made righteousness. Follow the money. When it comes to a lot of this virtue signaling we see on Facebook and in the news media and in ministries, always follow the money because wealth and the pursuit thereof is underneath all of that most of the time. The Bible doesn't lie when it says the love of money is the root of all evil. It doesn't say all kinds of evil like the modern Bibles twist it. It's the root of all evil. It is. Because the love of money is tied to pride. And that goes back. There's more, you know, we think money only means coins or dollar bills or debit cards. No. Abraham had money. His money was land, sheep, and cattle, gold and silver. Currency. The pursuit of currency is the root of all evil. And we've got to make sure that's not what motivates us in our lives. It's not what motivates us in our ministries. Nations, kings, merchants, traders, they're all deceived and they're all sucked into Babylon's schemes and judgments. The USA included. We're not exempt from that. We're not the great light that's going to usher the world into a, a, an era of peace and utopia. This was an experiment 
in liberty. It was an experiment, a grand experiment that even our founding fathers admitted could not continue forever. It was a limited experiment. It was very <laughs> successful. It resulted in much spiritual fruit around the world. It resulted in things that were once commonplace, unfortunate and terrible things, human nature being erased. It produced many things, but we've become fat. We've become entitled. We've turned away from God. Morality has taken a back seat, and therefore the experiment has failed exactly like our founding fathers said it would. They told us this Constitution will work for a time because it's meant for a moral and a virtuous God-fearing people. But when the people cease to be these things, this government will no longer work. And that's where we are today. The government does not work. It, isn't, it is the false world system, the judgment of which we're reading about right now. It is. And many of us have been deceived. Many of us. We need to wake up. We need to wake up because when the world system is fully and finally judged, there's a whole lot of collateral damage. A whole lot of collateral damage. And we want to be ready and we don't want to be caught up in that. That's where we, 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 we proceed here in the chapter. In the first three verses of chapter 18, what we saw is a declaration of doom against the political or commercial element of the world system. In verses 4 through 8, we have a notice, a warning. There will be collateral damage. And I heard another voice come from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that you be not partakers of her sins, and that you receive not of her plagues. For her sins have reached unto heaven, and God hath remembered her iniquities. Reward her even as she has rewarded you and double unto her double according to her works in the cup which she hath filled fill, filled fill to her double. How much she hath glorified herself and lived deliciously. So much torment and sorrow give her for she saith in her heart, I sit a queen and am no widow and shall see no sorrow. Therefore shall her plagues come in one day, death and mourning and famine, and she shall be utterly burned with fire, for strong is the Lord God who judgeth her. There'll be collateral damage. A warning is given, come out of her or be caught up in her judgment. Come out or be caught in it. Again, these same things are written in the Old Testament in those prophecies about Babylon. There's an appeal to Israel to come out, to get out, to get away because judgment is coming. In Jeremiah 51, remember 50 and 51 talk about the fall of Babylon. Isaiah 13 and 14 as well. Jeremiah 51 5 through 7. For Israel hath not been forsaken, nor Judah of his God, of the Lord of hosts, though their land was filled with sin against the Holy One of Israel. Flee out of the midst of Babylon, and deliver every man his soul. 
Be not cut off in her iniquity, for this is the time of the Lord's vengeance. He will render unto her a recompense. Babylon has been a golden cup in the Lord's hand that made all the earth drunken. The nations have drunken of her wine. Therefore, the nations are what? Mad. Those that drink of her wine and of her fornication, those that are caught up in the world system, those that cease being a moral people, a God-fearing people, are mad. They're insane. America, it was said by a preacher one time, is an insane asylum run by the inmates. Why? Because they're drunk, we're drunk with the world system. Particularly in nations that once knew God and turned from Him, the insanity is particularly strong. When you mess with God's Word, when a people messes with God's Word, God will mess with their collective mind. But here Israel is told to flee, come out. Back in chapter 50, verse 8, the same thing. Remove out of the midst of Babylon and go forth out of the land of the Chaldeans. Leave. Come out. Or be called up. It's a message. Here in Revelation 18, my people is a reference to Israel. It's a reference to the Jews who are betrayed. Come out because it's all going to fall. It's a direct reference to Jews in the tribulation. But there's an obvious spiritual application for believers. There's obviously an application to us living even now in the midst of a crooked and perverse system. We need to come out or be caught up. This is biblical. Let's look at a couple of verses this morning. I want to give my voice a rest and let some people read. Gene, if you'll read 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 17. Daniel, Acts 2, verse 40. And Bob, if you'll read Proverbs 9, verse 6. Go ahead, Gene, when you have it. 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 17. Yes. Be not unequally yoked. We are foolish to think that this is... This, this verse is almost always only cited in reference to dating relationships and marriage relationships. That's actually not the context here. It's actually much bigger than that. We should not be unequally yoked with the world system. I think it has application in business. I think it has application in relationships. Marital relationships, just one type of relationship. 
I think it has application in lots of things. We are not to be unequally yoked in a situation where the world system is a burden to us. It can vex us, but it shouldn't be a burden that controls us. We are to come out and be separate. Just as Israel was called to be separate from the nations of the world, we as Christians in our lives ought to be separate from the world. It doesn't mean we go out of the world. We live in the world. We're lights in the world. But when people look at us, they should see something set apart. If we're caught up in all this madness we see on the television and all this red versus blue and Republican good, Democrat bad, if we're caught up in that and we look like one side or the other, then we are unequally yoked. We have to be different. The country's divided. There's hatred. There's division. We can't be caught up in it. We have to be other than that. We have to be a light in a dark world. The left and the right sides of the aisle in our political system are very dark. We have to be lights. We have to be other. We have to show that in Christ, we have a peace that they cannot find in the world system. We have a boldness that they cannot squelch. We have a liberty that they can't find. And hopefully they'll be drawn to Christ. They'll be drawn to the peace that passes all understanding. Acts chapter 2 verse 40. Peter's preaching at Pentecost to the Jews gathered there. And the thousands were saved that day, just the men. And he's telling them, save yourselves from this untoward generation in which you live. Particularly Jews caught up in the Roman world system. Save yourselves. Guys, save yourselves from this garbage, this madness that's foisted down our throats every day. Save yourselves. Come out or be caught up. Proverbs 9, 6. Forsake the foolish and live and go the way of understanding. Forsake the foolish. Forsake their foolishness and live. That's the key. You know what makes me very sad? We had an election recently. And in the scheme of things, I don't know if it would have made any difference regardless of the results. But a lot of us aren't happy with the results. We don't like to see people who hate God and uh, trumpet the murder of unborn children and, and despise the Bible and want to throw all sorts of immorality in our face. We don't like to see them get elected. We don't like to see elections stolen. But wicked people are elect, wicked men are elected, men and women in judgment are elected because wicked people put them there. And we need to save ourselves from this foolishness. We need to come out. Let our peace be in spite of all this madness. You know, we can't get caught up in this red, good, blue, bad garbage. I mean, you guys saw those pictures I showed you of that... Uh, Ruined house and abortion clinic in Philadelphia, the Kermit Gosnell Clinic, and all that house of horrors. You may not know too much about it. There's an interesting movie that's come out about it. But 
the authorities who, according to Pennsylvania law, were required to inspect these facilities regularly to make sure there wasn't that type of garbage going on were told to stand down and leave this man alone by a Republican governor. This crazy woman down in Florida who's caught up in all this fraud and corruption in Broward County, she was originally appointed by a Republican governor, by Jeb Bush. I mean, I was grieved this weekend... I keep wanting to turn off Trump's tweets. I get them because I want to see what he has to say. I want to see what's going on. I can't watch anything on TV to keep up with the news. It's all fake news, but they're just grievous. This weekend, he sent out tweets that praised people like Jerry Brown, Nancy Pelosi, that black man that lost that governor's race down in Florida, that wicked, open, naked socialist, praising these people, talking about they fought a good fight. They've got a Bright political future. That's grievous. How do you praise wicked people? How do you align yourself with that? But it's all the false world system. Republican, Democrat, it's two sides of the same coin keeping each other propped up. We need to understand these things and not get caught up in it. What does that mean? Does it mean we don't vote? Maybe at times we don't. Does it mean we ignore national elections and focus on state and local elections? I don't have the answer there. You're not going to hear me tell you what to do. I think one way to get out of the world system is to say, you know what, right now I don't know what I'll do on November 6th or 7th, whatever date it is, 2020. I don't know what I'm going to do. How can I know? And not commit to anything. I'll tell you one thing. Without, we're told to come out of it, but in coming out, There's something we should do. We need to come out. But when we come out, that's not a dead thing. That's not a a static thing. It's a dynamic thing. What does it look like to come out? Well, Paul gives us the answer in Philippians chapter 2. We can't come out and go hide in our closet. We can't come out and isolate ourselves and go move up to the the taiga in northern Canada or Alaska and build a cabin and shut it all off. That's not what coming out is. Philippians 2.15. Paul writes, he's encouraging the Philippian believers to rejoice in all things, rejoice always. Verse 14, he says, Do all things without murmurings and disputings, verse 15, that you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom you shine as lights in the world. To come out is not to isolate ourselves. To come out is to shine as lights in a dark world. Exactly like the Messiah came, did when he came to Israel 2,000 years ago, and the center of his ministry was the Galilee, just like the prophet said. In a dark land, a light would shine. That's what we're to be. We're to come out and shine as dark, as lights in a dark world. Come out and shine or partake and receive. That's the exhortation today. That's given... In the context of the tribulation to God's people, Israel, the remnant that remains. But it obviously applies to us and agrees with the instruction the church has given in the epistles. Verses 5 through 8 
come out in verse 4. And then verses 5 through 8, we see that God sees all but waits. He sees all but waits. And this can be a source of frustration to us. It was a source of frustration to the prophets. Isaiah said, oh, that the Lord would rend the heavens and come down. Habakkuk, the prophet, didn't understand why God waited. Why he had to wait for the vision. But here again, as is affirmed multiple times in the scriptures, verses 5 through 8, God sees all and he does not forget. Matthew 12, 36 is sobering. I used this passage preaching on the college campuses recently that men, God not only doesn't forget the actions of men, God does not forget the words of men. God does not forget a single idle word that a human mouth in any age or time has spoken. Jesus said that men will give an account on the day of judgment for every idle word they have spoken. When I thought about some of these young people blaspheming Christ and saying all sorts of evil and blasphemy, I warn them, you're going to answer for that. God will not forget what you've said here today. You're adding to your sin and condemnation and you won't answer to it. God sees all as iniquity builds. He waits, but he does not forget. All of this evil that vexes us will be judged. Just as the evil that vexed Lot was judged and overthrown in a moment. The kingdom of the beast, which represents the ultimate the culmination of the false world system will be rewarded double for what she has done and will do to Israel. She'll be rewarded for what she does in the time of Jacob's trouble just like Babylon of old was rewarded for what she did to the Jew. This is spoken of in Habakkuk the prophet. God tells the prophet, I'm going to send Babylon to judge Israel. And Habakkuk couldn't handle that. Why would you send a wicked people to judge us? Yeah, we've sinned, but why would you use this wicked people? What about them? What about them, God? God says, you need to chill out and wait for the vision. And then the prophet learns, don't worry about Babylon. They'll get what's coming to them. And this is what we see here. She will have done to her the world system will have done to her what she did to Christ, what she has done throughout history to prophets and righteous men, what she has done in the righteous men, what she has done in the church age to martyrs and saints. The commercial kingdom of the beast will have done to it exactly what it did to the whore in Revelation 17. Those ten horns and the beast overthrow the religious whore, mystery Babylon, and they make her desolate and naked, and they burn her with fire because she's no longer useful. And then that turns around and happens to them. Same exact thing. In chapter 18, verse 8, that her plagues will come in one day, death and mourning and famine, and she shall be utterly burned with fire. Utterly burned with fire. Back in chapter 17, verse 16. And the ten horns which thou sawest upon the beast, these shall hate the whore and shall make her desolate and naked and shall eat her flesh and burn her with fire. So what she did to the religious whore will be done to her. Why? 
for strong is the Lord God who judges her. It's two statements I think about God in the scriptures that are that just are powerful to me. One of them is the rhetorical question that Abraham asked of God prior to the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham asked a rhetorical question with an obvious answer. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And the answer is, of course. The judge of all the earth does right. That's powerful. And I think what we see here at the end of verse 8 is powerful. Strong is the Lord God that judges her. Not only will the judge of the earth do right, but that judge is strong. And he judges. There is a reward for the righteous. There is a judgment to the wicked. The earth will be full of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. We should rest in these promises. When it comes to the wicked all around us, vengeance is not ours, it's the Lord's. We can pray for Him to take it. It vexes us, but we need to rest in the promises of God. Psalm 7 is what I like to call the, pray, the, the psalm or the prayer of the slandered saint. How many of us have been slandered in our lives? The sad thing is many of us have experienced slander and libel from the mouths and the pens of others that would call themselves brothers and sisters in Christ. It's nothing new under the sun. Don't think you've had it worse than anybody else because you haven't. But Psalm 7 is the prayer of the slandered saint. And the slandered saint, King David, says this about the wicked. He made a pit, his accusers, those that persecuted him, persecuted the righteous. He made a pit, he digged it, and he's fallen into the ditch, which he made. His mischief shall return upon his own head, and his violent dealing shall come down upon his own pate. I will praise the Lord. That's divine karma. The wicked will fall into the pit he has dug for others. Babylon falls into the pit she dug for mystery Babylon. She dug for the righteous. She dug for the Jews. She falls into it. She falls into it. And her mischief returns upon her own head. And her violence will come down violently upon her own pate. I love that word. It's an old English word. I don't know what the modern Bibles say. I think they probably say head. But the pate, anybody know what the pate is? If you don't have any hair, you can see a pate. If you got hair, you can't. The pate, see the ridge of the head? See it? Kind of the ridge? It's the crown of the head. The coronilla in Spanish. The pate. Okay? Have you ever, oh sorry, I'll get off here. You ever seen those games in those old arcades in the 80s where you took the rubber hammer and you're hitting them those moles on the head? That's what it is. The violent dealings of the wicked will come slamming down right on the top of the head, right on the pate, right here, just like that hammer on the top of that mole. That's what happens to Babylon here. That's what happens to the wicked. We can, like the psalmist, trust in the Lord to do right, And when the judgment comes, we can be as David. I will praise the Lord according to his righteousness. There's a key distinction, though, 
the wrath that we desire to see on the wicked in our own lives, that David desired to see, that Habakkuk desired to see, that judgment oftentimes was drawn out, the judgment or the the wickedness that the evil world system does to the righteous is drawn out and spread out over time, but not, not with the judgment of the system itself. It's swift. It's swift. It's not drawn out. When the judgment does come, we think, well, why, what's taking God so long? He sees all that wait and waits. He's not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. But when it does come, it's not drawn out. It's not spread out over a number of years like history reveals about the city of Babylon following its fall to the Persians. It's instant. It's in a single day, a single hour. It's swift. It's swift. Therefore shall her plagues come in one day, death and mourning. It's sudden. In Second, First Thessalonians chapter 5, in the context of the last days in the tribulation, For when they shall say peace and safety, sudden destruction cometh upon them. Chapter 4. Remember, it, it, it reveals the rapture of the saints. Us. 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 The pronoun. And then we get to chapter 5. Paul switches. It's no longer us. It's them. 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 Remember the pronoun change when I did my teaching on the rapture of the church? When they shall say peace and safety, sudden destruction Cometh upon them. When we read what's written here about what shall fall to Babylon being utterly burned with fire and these things, it's hard not to think a rebuilt city that represents the worldview is in view here. Uh, in verse 10, the kings of the earth stand afar off, saying, Alas, that great city Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour is her judgment come. In Isaiah 13, Babylon is spoken of as being utterly burned with fire, just like we see here. These things can arise and happen very quickly. The 20th century doesn't teach you those things. If you look at at the rise and fall of the Third Reich in Germany, you're not talking about a very long period of time. World War II ended in 1918. Germany invaded Poland with a mighty army. Germany was gutted completely of its military. She was punished terribly at the Treaty of Versailles. Her economy went through the floor. It was a horrible judgment. 1918, 20 years later, Hitler with one of the world's mightiest armies invaded Poland. 20 years. When World War I ended, Hitler was a soldier for the Germans and he went and roamed around the streets in Austria trying to, he was one of these guys that sat on the corner with a guitar trying to get money, singing on the corner, get a few coins. He was a drunk musician living on the streets for some years after that. And then 21 years later, he leads one of the mightiest armies on the planet to invade Poland. It's quick. It rose quick and it fell quick. That's a type of what we're going to see in the last day. So even if We're talking about the literal rebuilding of a city in Babylon, something we don't see happening right now. It can happen quickly. The Jewish temple will raise quickly. Antichrist will rise quickly. In modern times, we have an example of this. I was in the USSR in 1991. I was there in June and July of 1991. The USSR 
the mighty bear, the communist bear. I've traveled around Russia and the Ukraine, went to some of the major cities, statues of Lenin and Stalin everywhere, hammers and sickles everywhere. Everything seemed strong. It was threatening. It was intimidating as an American to go in the early 90s during the Cold War. There didn't seem to be any discussion on the streets or any indication that that mighty empire would fall three weeks after I came home. I'm looking at the news as a 15-year-old kid, and there's a missile that's been shot through the front of a hotel we were staying in. There was no unrest. We saw plenty of Soviet military. Everything seemed strong. And then it fell just like that and broke apart. That teaches us in modern times that these things can happen very quickly. That's why the church, that's why we need to be ready at any moment for our Lord to come and get us. Christians are told to be ready at any moment. But for Israel, for the world, the judgment that comes with Christ's return is mapped out. Israel is told that Daniel's 70th week, that last seven years of God's plan and purpose for Israel, won't begin until the man of sin signs a peace treaty. That's the sign that there's one week of years left for God to accomplish His purposes with Israel. That's the sign. Jesus tells us that when the abomination of desolation comes to Jerusalem, that the Jewish remnant that remains is to flee into the mountains. That's the sign. We're told the length of Antichrist's reign over all the earth, how many days it is and how many months it is. There are signs. But yet we're told to be ready at any moment. What we're told to be ready for is not what we're going to read about here in Revelation 18 or in chapter 19, the return of Christ to judge. Hosea tells us Christ can't come back until Israel recognizes their transgression and calls for him. That's when he'll redeem them. So it's, right, it's plain right there in the chapters. So we're told to be at every, ready at any moment because Christ is going to do for us what was done for Enoch, what was done for Lot. We're going to be delivered. And that shouldn't make us, that shouldn't cause us to be lazy. shouldn't cause us to be isolated. That should propel us to go out and preach the gospel and shine as lights in a dark world, being ready at any moment. And when I look at the prophetic timeline, there's nothing that has to happen before Christ takes and raptures His church. In fact, that could happen two years, five years, ten years, twenty years before the tribulation even begins. Daniel tells us when it begins, Daniel 9.27. There's no reason the rapture couldn't happen some years before that. I don't think it'll be many years before that, but it could happen at any time. We need to be ready because what we're reading about, the rise of it and the fall of it will be quick. It'll be sudden. So we have a declaration of doom. This doom will bring collateral damage up through verse 8. Then we have a courtroom reaction. Have you ever seen one of those scenes when a sentence is read or a verdict is read in a courtroom that's unexpected? What happens? The courtroom gasps. Oh. You, can, you can read this. You can see these in various YouTube videos. Some of them are humorous. But that's what we have here. The world system is overthrown and those in the courtroom gasp with shock and horror. We're told that the kings of the earth are shocked. 
The merchants of the earth are baffled. The shipmasters of the earth gasp. When the world system is overthrown, the politics, the economics, the trade, it's all affected. It all comes crashing down. Just like at the seventh vial judgment, all the cities of the nations fall. Everything, the politicians, the CEOs, the businessmen, the TV preachers, the stock traders, everything they trusted in is suddenly overthrown. Just like that house Jesus talks about that's built upon a foundation of sand. It's overthrown. Verses 9 through 19, we're going to go through quickly. And the kings of the earth who have committed fornication and lived deliciously with her shall bewail her and lament for her when they shall see the smoke of her burning. Standing afar off. Oh, they're not there trying to deliver her or help her out or face it. They're standing afar far off. When the judgment comes, suddenly there's no loyalty anymore. Isn't that human nature? Standing afar off for fear of her torment. They don't stand to help. They flee. Saying, alas, alas, that great city Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour is thy judgment come. The politicians, the kings, the rulers, bewail, lament, moaning, crying. Any of you all ever see some of those videos uh, that were, or those, that footage taken after Trump won the election of some of the reactions of Democrats and liberals crying and moaning? Some of it was ridiculous. I mean, that was, that's what we have here. The most powerful people in the world bewailing and moaning. Verse 11, and the merchants of the earth, the billionaires, the CEOs, the rich men, those pulling the strings behind the scenes, the Illuminati, the Rothschild, whatever you want to call them, the merchants of the earth shall weep and mourn over her, for no man buyeth their merchandise anymore. When the system falls, there is no more wealth. There's no more buying and trading. There's no more get rich quick. What mer- their merchandise can't be bought anymore. The merchandise of gold. They can't buy salvation anymore. They can't buy protection. They can't buy an escape. The merchandise of gold and silver and precious stones and pearls and fine linen and purple and silk and scarlet and all thine wood and all manner vessels of ivory and all manner vessels of most precious wood and of brass and iron and marble and cinnamon and odors and ointments and frankincense and wine and oil and fine flour and wheat and beasts and sheep and horses and chariots and slaves and souls of men. Can't sell this stuff anymore. It has no value. When the system falls, these things have no value. We've seen this in history tons of times. When a country collapses, the money you've got stored in your mattress can suddenly have no value. I visited Zimbabwe some years ago. Zimbabwe used to be um, uh, the fruitful and prosperous African nation of Rhodesia that was settled by Europeans. And it was, it was like a breadbasket. It provided food to lots of countries in Africa around the world. It was a strong nation. And then the U.S. and some of the other European nations were jealous and they helped prop up terrorists that came in there and basically overthrew the country. And the U.S. government 
and the European governments put their puppet in power, Robert Mugabe, who's still alive. He's like 90-some years old. The most wicked people often live very long. But don't worry, their judgment will come suddenly and they'll be forgotten. But he murdered thousands of his own people. And it was very corrupt. And that's blood that America has on his, his hands. He's been forced to step down a few years ago. But the country was ransacked. The white farmers were driven out. And what was a breadbasket that supplied food to all of Africa is now one of the poorest places in Africa. And it's sick. It's sick what's happened to that country. And in its economic upheaval, their money became worthless. There were stories. They had to end up printing, I forget what their currency was, but it was like trillion-dollar bills. I've got one of them somewhere at home. Somebody gave it to me. They were printing bills that were like a trillion of their currency because it had no value. And people would literally take wheelbarrows full of bills to buy basic commodities. It got so bad that the country actually had to start just using the American dollar as its currency. So they don't even use their own currency anymore. They use the American dollar. And you know how we're told don't put money in your mouth, it's dirty, it's passed through people's hands and all that. Yeah, we've got dirty money here. But when I went to Zimbabwe a few years ago, I've never seen dollar bills that dirty before. I mean, you wouldn't want to put that in your mouth. It was a dollar bill, all right, but I probably couldn't spend it here because nobody would take it. I mean, it looked, I mean, I don't know if people wipe their rear ends with them. I don't know what they do, but they're dirty. And something else I saw that was very common was a lot of times in the basic transactions of the day, you'd get $2 bills. There were $2 bills everywhere over there. We don't use those here now, but dirty money. But when the, when the system fell... When the government collapsed, the economy collapsed. And when the economy collapsed, money doesn't have value anymore. Especially us today, our money's not backed by anything. It's just a paper. Guys, if you're storing a bunch of money in the mattress, realize that we can wake up one day and it has no value. Don't put your trust in these things. It's not backed by gold or silver. Gold and silver has always had value. Land is a form of currency. Cattle is a form of currency. Gold and silver, these are forms of currency the Bible has talked about that retain value. But paper money does not. It's all going to crash down. All the merchandise will have no value from gold down to the souls of men. Verse 14, and the fruits that thy soul lusted after are departed from thee, and all the things which were dainty and goodly are departed from thee, and thou shalt find them no more at all. All the things we become so used to are suddenly taken. The merchants of these things which were made rich by her, once again, shall stand afar off for the fear of her torment, weeping and wailing. The system that propped them up, the system that made them rich, when the judgment comes, they suddenly forget that and they back off. Whoa, we're not going to help her out. There's no loyalty amongst the wicked. There's no loyalty amongst thieves. We see it even here. And saying, Alas, alas, that great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls. For in one hour so great riches is come to naught. That's a powerful statement. In one hour so great riches is come to naught. Please understand that it, in one hour we could lose everything we have. In one hour we could lose our health. We could have all the greatest health insurance in the world. In one hour, they could decide not to pay it. In one hour, everything you trust in can be taken. That's why we as Christians are to live as pilgrims. 
That's why we ought to live in such a way that our comfort and our joy is in spite of our circumstances and focused upon Christ. Because what they can't take from us is our salvation. What they can't take from us is the truth. What they can't stop is the coming of the King, the coming of the Messiah. They can't. You know, I, I was going to make a point a few minutes ago, and I forgot, and I kind of got frazzled in my mind. I'm weird, really weary like, like right now. We didn't get back in, I didn't get in bed until 2.30. That's a long trip. We're not going to get season tickets and go watch Alabama football. Every <laughs> Don't think so. It's a lot of fun, but uh, it was a long trip. But I'm tired. But I was trying to make this point earlier. In this recent election we had, they polled people afterwards. And in spite of everything we see going around us, migrant armies coming to our border, tensions around the world, conflict, threats to take away freedoms, illegal immigration, Supreme Court. And all of this, the top issue on people's minds when they went to the polls was health care. Pre-existing conditions. That's what people were consumed with when they went to the polls. Now that's just a crying shame. We as Christians, if that's what we're worried about, we have a spiritual problem. Because first of all, the health care you trust in can be taken from you in a moment. The insurance company that you pay an arm and a leg to every month could suddenly decide they're not going to cover your sickness and there's nothing you can do about it. It's just the way it is. We can't put our trust in this stuff. That's what governed the decisions of the American people. They cared only about themselves and their health care when there's no security in that anyway. That's another sign of God's judgment already upon this nation. These things can suddenly be taken from us. The merchants weep and mourn. Business is gone. Weeping, wailing, security. One hour, it's all gone. Verse 18, I mean verse 17. For in one hour so great riches has come to naught. And every shipmaster and all the company and ships and sailors and as many as trade... By sea, stood far off. The politician, the economist, the CEOs, the, the businessmen, the traders. They stood afar off and cried when they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, What city is like unto this great city? And they cast dust on their heads and cried, weeping and wailing, saying, Alas, alas, that great city wherein were made rich all that had ships in the sea by reason of her costliness. For in one hour she is made desolate. The shipmasters, the traders, the small businessmen cried dust on their heads. In one hour the whole thing came crashing down. It's all lost. They're shocked, they're dumbfounded. The fall of the world system not only affects the leaders of that system, it affects everyone attached to it. Collateral damage. All the politicians, Local, state, and national government. All the rich businessmen, CEOs, and stock traders. All the small businessmen. Those that run the infrastructure. It's all gone. Nothing. Everything they trusted in is gone. Everything we consider ourselves entitled to. Every item, every iPhone, every internet piece of internet access, every coffee shop... Everything that the millennial generation thinks they're entitled to is suddenly taken. And there won't be a safe space 
They may stand afar off, but there's no safe space. There's nowhere to go. It's all gone. I think when we read the list of things here that is lost, the types of merchandise that is lost, there's a list here in verse 12. It starts with gold. Gold is at the top. And all the way at the end of that list in verse 13 is the souls of men. I kind of think that there's two applications here when we think of America today. America trades in all of these things. It merchandises in all of these things. Beginning with gold and ending with slaves and the souls of men. This so-called righteous nation merchandises slaves and the souls of men, even today. Those that want to tear down Confederate statues, even though the Confederate Constitution was the first constitution in the history of the world to specifically outlaw and make punishable the slave trade. A slave ship never sailed. A ship sla- a trading slaves never sailed with the stars and bars. But plenty of them sailed under the colors of the star-spangled banner. All the people talking about oppression and social justice can't even see that we trade in the souls of men. Souls of men is big business in this country. It's called abortion. It's called the slaughter of the unborn and the use of their tissues to make makeup that goes on the faces of some of the ladies. Merchandise. Slavery. Companies and businesses trade in slaves. We think we're a free country. We think there's no slavery anymore. Slavery's all around. People are slaves to their health care. The health care and health insurance industries have made us slaves. So much so that we can't make any decision in our life because all we care about is our health benefits. We're slaves. Companies have made us slaves to our employers because we're rattled by so much debt. The borrower is a slave to the lender. We are a culture of slavery and merchandise and gold and in the souls of men. We are these things right here. That's why our nation will fall. We can't even see it. All we talk about is Trump this, Trump that, MAGA this, freedom of the press here. Oppression here, and we can't even see that we, as a culture and a nation, trade in slaves in the souls of men. Wicked. But it's all going to fall. It's all going to be judged. There's another interesting application when we think about the false religious world system as personified in the Catholic Church in chapter 17. When I think of Roman Catholicism and that false religious system, it merchandises in these things. Throughout all of history. And when you look at the list here, you almost see an order of priority. When it comes to so much out here that purports to care about your soul, your soul is actually last on the list. And gold is on the top of the list. Follow the money. Throughout uh, throughout 1,500 years of Roman Catholic history, Merchandise of gold was on the top of the list. And the souls of men and the gospel as relates to that was at the bottom. That's why 
Bible translators were arrested. That's why Bibles were destroyed. That's why whole villages were burned and destroyed for possessing the Bible. They don't want you to know what's in the Scriptures because they care about gold. And that's false religious system today. That's a lot of the ministries out here today. The top of the list is gold, money. The bottom of the list is the souls of men that they actually claim to be reaching. I mean, follow the money. I mean, it's, it's just amazing the hypocrisy and the dichotomy out there. Do you remember this, this Supreme Court justice, this Kavanaugh? Okay, there was a lot of money raised on a GoFundMe page for him when he was going through all that. And to his credit, he didn't take any of it. He didn't take any of it. He gave it to Catholic charities. Catholic charities. Okay, the same Catholic charities that claim to care so much about the immigrants and think we should have open borders and let anybody come in here. And, and, and the souls of immigrants are really at the bottom of the list with these charities. Why are they so adamant about bringing in the illegals and letting anybody come to this country? Because for every soul of man they bring in, they get a nice little paycheck from the government. Follow the money. Follow the money. Baptist, plenty of Baptist ministries as well. That's why you've got missionaries that go around raising support and talk about needing amounts in excess of fifty or sixty thousand dollars a year to live. Follow the money. On the priority list of a lot, gold is at the top, souls of men is at the bottom. A couple of different applications. I just thought about that reading that list. We've got to ask ourselves. What motivates us here? Is it really the souls of men? Or are these ministries to reach them a means to acquiring all this other stuff? Got to be on guard. Standing afar off for the fear of her torment. Where's the loyalty? Where is it? Those that act like you're so important and want to entice you into their false system when you're no longer useful, there's no longer loyalty. None. That's why the whore herself is judged in Revelation 17. Verse 16, we see a mention of purple and scarlet. These were the colors of both political and religious Rome. The Roman emperors were given the purple. When the emperor died, whoever received the purple was the new political leader. Scarlet is the color of the Roman cardinals and the papacy. So purple and scarlet, the world system, political and religious, both here. We, take, we, we, we see these shipmasters crying and standing at a distance. I, there can't be that many of them left because in Revelation 8, the second trumpet judgment, remember judgment falls upon the sea and it said a third of the ships are destroyed. So there's not even a whole lot of those guys left by the end of the tribulation. But um, they stand afar off in shock. Just like the shipmasters of Tyre. Remember we looked at Tyre as an example of how we can understand the fulfillment of prophecy. It's to the letter. It's in detail. And how what was written of Tyre happened in history. Ezekiel chapter 26. And the shipmasters. Tyre was an ancient uh, port of trade. It was a hub for trade all over the world. The ancient Phoenician capital. And they just stood there in shock. The judgment comes. And then in verse 20, we've had a declaration of doom, a notice of collateral damage. 
a courtroom reaction, a gasp from the kings, the merchants, and the shipmasters. And then in verse 20, we have an invitation. An invitation to celebrate. An invitation to celebration. Rejoice over her, thou heaven, and you holy apostles and prophets, for God hath avenged you on her. Remember David talked about what would happen to the wicked there in Psalm 7, the prayer of the slandered saint. And then he says, I will praise the Lord. Rejoice over her, thou heavens, for God has avenged you. Remember back in Revelation chapter 6, we were reading about the seal judgments. The, the Lamb, the Messiah, is given that seven-scrolled book, which is the title deed of the earth, and as he begins to loosen the seals, the judgment comes. So that when the seventh seal is open, that title deed is there. He's the rightful possessor, and he's coming to take what is his. When the, seventh, when the um, seals are peeled off, there's judgment. The seventh seal is the seven trumpet judgments. The seventh trumpet is the seven vile judgments. So the seventh seal is the trumpet and vile judgments. But as the seals are being peeled off, there's the fifth seal judgment. Remember that in chapter 6? Chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And right robes were given unto every one of them, and it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. So in this sealed judgment, there wasn't actually something poured out upon the earth. It was That judgment was the cry of vengeance from the martyrs of all ages that had been murdered and that had suffered at the hands of this false world system. Lord, when will you avenge? Their prayers were a judgment that guaranteed what we're reading about here in Revelation 18. And remember, they're told, rest a little while. These are the martyrs of all the ages. Rest a little while until your fellow servants join you. See, there would be more martyrs yet to come fill up that iniquity. That would be the tribulation saints. Now, by the time, the end of the tribulation, in the events of chapter 18, those that should be killed to fill it up have been. And now what was prayed for in Revelation 6 takes place. That's it. The fifth seal judgment was a judgment because it guaranteed what we're reading about. What the saints praying at the altar are told to celebrate in chapter 18, verse 20. Finally, they are avenged. And the righteous, going all the way back to righteous Abel, are avenged fully. Fully and finally. It says in verse 20, um, You holy apostles and prophets. These are the righteous of both ages. The righteous of the New Testament church age, the apostles, and those of the Old Testament age, the prophets. They're all avenged. It's kind of interesting when you think of the holy prophets and the apostles. The apostles are idolatrously worshipped 
than Roman Catholicism. They're idolatrously worshipped. But yet they're specifically mentioned here as rejoicing in the fall of this false system as if it avenged them. It avenged them from all the false things said about them as if, as if they're some kind of saints that we need to go through to get to Mary, to get to Jesus or up the chain. All Catholicism did was take the false gods of political Rome and give them Christian names. I mean, in Rome, they were burning incense to Venus. They just changed their name to Mary and used a lot of the same statues still there today. But the apostles are avenged for how they've been falsely worshipped. Just kind of interesting, the, the parallel there. Rejoice. The righteous are invited to rejoice and celebrate the judgment. That's not easy to comprehend. That wouldn't be popular in modern day church. I need to rejoice over the judgment? What does this mean? I'll tell you what it doesn't mean. Let's turn to Proverbs 24. I'm going to do what Daniel said. When the church asked me to do something, I'm going to do it because I'm a servant. So he asked me to preach to a one. So uh, I'll do it. Proverbs 24, 17 and 18. This is what rejoicing and celebrating in the judgment is not. Proverbs 24, 17 and 18. Rejoice not when thine enemy falleth, and let not thine heart be glad when he stumbles, lest the Lord see it and it displease him, and he turn away his wrath. To celebrate God's judgment over the wicked is not what Proverbs. It's not rejoicing over our enemy laughing at him, being glad when we see him get what is his. That's not what it is. We're, we're warned against that. But what is it? If it's not this, what is it? The answer's in Psalm 58. Psalm 58, a psalm of David, just like the prayer of the slandered saint. Verses 10 and 11, The righteous shall rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He shall wash his feet in the blood of the wicked, so that a man shall say, Verily there is a reward for the righteous. Verily he is a God that judges in the earth. To rejoice when judgment comes is not to rejoice over your enemy. It's to rejoice in God. Vengeance is God's. And we should celebrate when He takes it, not when we take it. Proverbs 11.10 also tells us what this is. When it goeth well with the righteous, the city rejoiceth. And when the wicked perish, there is shouting. There is shouting because the oppression is over. The wickedness is stamped out. Judges, the song of Barak and Deborah, when God delivered them from the wicked, they're in the time of the judges. Here's what they had to say. Judges 5.31 So let all thine enemies perish, O Lord, but that let them that love him be as the sun when he goeth forth in his might, and the land had rest forty years. Vengeance is the Lord's, and we can and should rejoice when he executes it. That's not the same as rejoicing over and laughing at our enemy, mocking him, 
and becoming the very thing to him he is to us. We're to love our enemies. If our enemy is hungry and in need, or if he's the, the victim of a crime in our presence, do we stand afar off like the merchants and the politicians and the shipmasters? No, we come to his aid. Proverbs 24 doesn't tell us only help the righteous when they are ready to be slain. It doesn't say that at all. When any man is ready to be slain, if we walk by and act like it's not our problem, God remembers that. Vengeance is the Lord's. We can and we should rejoice. In fact, the righteous do. They're invited to do it in verse 20. And then in chapter 19, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power to the Lord our God. They do it. Chapter 15, verse 4. The song of Moses sung by the tribulation saints. Who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou only art holy. All nations will come to worship before thee, for thy judgments are made manifest. They praise and celebrate the judgment of God. We can do that. That judgment has not come. That judgment has not come yet. It's future. What we're reading about is yet future. So for now... What can we do? For now, what can we do? The answer is in Proverbs 24. Verse 19, fret not thyself because of evil men. Guys, the system will be overthrown. We see it all around us today. Don't fret. Fret not thyself because of evil men, neither be thou envious of the wicked. For there shall be no reward to the evil man. The candle of the wicked shall be put out. Vengeance is God's, not ours. We're not to take vengeance. We can celebrate when God takes it. But in the meantime, fret not. Fret not. Shine as lights in a dark world. Kind of sandwiched around these verses, Proverbs 24 has some things that would would definitely apply to us today. Verse 10, if thou faint in the day of adversity, thy strength is small. These are days of adversity. If we faint, we don't have any strength. Verses 11 and 12, if thou forbear to deliver them that are drawn unto death, this doesn't specify only our friends, only our family, or only the righteous. If thou forbear to deliver them that are drawn unto death and those that are ready to be slain, if thou sayest, behold, we knew it not, doth not he that pondereth the heart consider it? And he that keepeth thy soul, doth not he know it? And shall not he render to every man according to his work? There's a converse that's also true in the here and now. In the here and now. Second Chronicles chapter 19, the righteous king Jehoshaphat came back from aiding wicked king Ahab at Ramoth Gilead. That was a disaster. The true prophet of God warned about going up there and they didn't listen. They wanted a prophet to tell them what they wanted to hear. They went out. The battle was lost. Ahab was killed. Jehoshaphat escaped, and as he was coming back, he was met in the road by a prophet, Jehu the son of Hanani, went out to meet him. And he said this to the righteous king, this is 2 Chronicles 19, 1 and 2. And Jehoshaphat the king of Judah returned to his house in peace in Jerusalem. And Jehu the son of Hanani the seer went out to meet him and said to king Jehoshaphat, Shouldest thou help the ungodly? And love them that hate the Lord. Therefore is wrath upon thee from before the Lord. Converse is true. Vengeance is not ours. 
We're not to rejoice over our enemy and mock him when he falls, but to help the ungodly in their ungodliness and to love all those that hate the Lord brought wrath from God, judgment from God upon the righteous king. We ought to consider these things. To love our enemy is not to help him in his ungodliness. It's not to love on everybody and affirm and tolerate everything. That's not loving our enemy. To love our enemy is to tell the truth. Just a couple of things. I'll end there today. In, in the last few verses there, chapter 18, we have an epitaph of eradication. Declaration of doom, notice of collateral damage, invitation to celebration, and then an epitaph. The epitaph of the system is final. It's one of eradication. Just like this carved on a tombstone, an epitaph. The world system that vexes us as it vexed Lot will be eradicated. I'll finish that up very quickly next week and then we will get into chapter 19 but I want to end with a word of encouragement preached a lot on judgment and all of this but we started in 2nd Peter we looked at Lot vexed with the filthy conversation wicked let's end with chapter 3 verse 11 seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved the world system included. Everything that we're living in right now, that we're experiencing, that we're seeing, everything that's been built up, it's all going to be dissolved. We're reading about it right here. And the righteous celebrate it. So knowing all these things we've read about this morning, everything we've read in the book of Revelation, seeing that all this will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought we to be in our holy conversation and godly? That's the question we need to ask. Seeing that all of these things are going to happen, it's all going to fall, what manner of people ought we to be? That's the question I leave you with. Not just in our conversation, but in our actions. What What kind of people ought we to be? Well, the answer is obvious. We ought to be a different people. Not like those caught up in it. We ought to be pilgrims. This is not our home. We ought to be separate. We ought to be lights in a dark world and ready to be an aid or salvation to those who won't have anyone else when this all comes crashing down. You know, that's the interesting thing. When you look at all the, the wicked that partner together and hate the Christians and want to silence them, you've got... The homosexual crowd buddying up with the Islam crowd, too blind to see that they hate each other, all against Christians. But when the judgment comes, some of these wicked people that are surrounded by friends unified in their chorus against the Bible and God will be forsaken because all those that were loyal to them will stand afar off. But the Christians they hate now may be the only friends they got, the only ones willing to, to help them as is written there and exhorted in Proverbs 24 in the day of wrath. 
So we got to be different. What manner of persons we ought to be? Different. Not caught up. Not giving our allegiances to worldly things. No king but Christ. I knew a man that walked into the polling place on election day. And he had to vote for a senator, U.S. senator for his state. We didn't have that. And he wrote in, no king but Christ. Some of you would think, well, that man just wasted his vote. No. He took a stand. Powerful. 